Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Arbor with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, May the 8th, 2018. Oh, we're going to have a fantastic show today. We have a great guest artist, and we're going to be playing music like this all day. Salsa, 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 salsa. Well, this and other songs like it. All right, get ready to dance, and then get ready to listen. was the fabulous, late, great, salsa great, Tito Buente, with Diego Mijan from the Dance Mania album back in 1958. Wow, that song is almost 60 years old, and it sounds like it could have been made today. Well, no, it's got that old school salsa sound to it. And I really love the title of it, Diego Mijan. That means basically the hot guy arrives, the papi chulo. The papi chulo is here. <laughs> Ay, Dios mio. Okay, I'm, I guess I'm being like really reeking. This is, I think I want to call this the really reeking episode. Even though the next song that I'm going to play that was handpicked by this week's guest artist for her episode 
might not be. back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Or I should say Fish Out of Cocktail Party because that song sounds like Martini Madness all over the place. That song is called Soul Sauce. It's from 1965 from an album called Soul Sauce, which is from the most successful non-Latino Latino musician named Cal Tejader, I think. I almost pronounced his name Tejada, which would have been um, like a Latin pronunciation. But I wikied him uh, in between the song, and he was actually a Swedish-American who explored all forms of Latin music, Afro-Cuban, Latin jazz, Latin rock. He was actually pretty prominent. And you kind of wonder, looking at a person like him, through today's lens, would he be considered a cultural appropriate? A little nugget to think about another time. We're not going to answer this right now because now it's time for our favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa.
Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! Every week I bring you an all new guest artist from all over the place. Sometimes they're from storytelling, sometimes they're from actor world, sometimes they're visual artists, sometimes they're musicians. And today we have someone with whom I met doing reading. So this is like from author land. And this is an author who I really love and I'm so happy to be able to snag her so you can learn all about her. Please welcome the fish out of agua, Dalma Lanos Figueroa. Woo! Thank you. And I pronounced all that right. Pretty close. Pretty close. Okay, yes. go ahead, do it. Dalma. Dalma. Llanos. Llanos. Figueroa. Figueroa. Okay. Okay. Now, I always say that I'm proud to speak Spanish like the American that I am. <laughs> what can I say? There you go. So, Dalma, oh my God, this is like, we were seeing each other a lot for a short period of time, right. but then we didn't see each other much anymore. That's right. That's right. But I'm hoping that when my new book comes out, we'll be seeing each other again. So, Dalma, I asked this question of everybody at the beginning, how and where and when did we meet? Oh my goodness. Well, I think it was in 2004 yeah, or yeah. five, because both of our works were included in um, Chicken Soup for the Latino Soul. Yes, we both had short stories included right. in that. Um, it's, it's a kind of a popular series. I didn't realize yes. it at the time. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we did a series of readings around the city. Yes. And that's oh. when we got to know each other. Yeah, oh, all different places. A lot of Barnes and Nobles. Yes. And yes. other places, too. Right. And we got to meet some other people who were doing some interesting work. And then we just kept running into each other at different venues around the city. So. And a couple of years later, we both had books come out. Exactly. And we started being booked to do readings also. Yes. So we saw each other then. Uh, I know Fish Out of Agua came out in 2010. When right. did... When did um, Daughters of the Daughters Stone. Daughters of, yeah. of the Stone come out? It came out in 2009. Oh, okay. So that makes sense that really we would have close. been really yes. close together. So yes. I remember doing a lot of readings with you right. at many different places. Yes. Too numerous and sometimes too torturous to mention. <laughs> we won't one, go there. No, we won't go there. But one of, um, also at uh, La Casa Azul, correct? Yes. Absolutely. I so miss that bookstore. I know, but you know, uh, I, I think that uh, Aurora is just doing, following her, her another dream. Yes. And this is, you know, who knows what she's going to come out with when once she graduates. I cannot wait to see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. So let's, uh, let's hear about how you became what you are, because you are just such an acclaimed author. You are taught in schools. You just have such a following. Like, I am just amazed at the amount of work that you put out and continue to put out and the subject matter that you write about. Thank you. Thank and we're you. going to hear all about it in a minute, but I have to ask this, where did you grow up? I grew up in New York City. Yes, another native New Yorker. I wasn't sure if, if you grew up here or not. No, no, no. I was born in Puerto Rico. Mm. I came here at the age of two. Mm. We lived, the first place we lived was in El Barrio. In oh, what a block? A tenement on 104th Street and 2nd Avenue. Wow. Oh, east side. East side. And I remember it vividly because um, the bathroom was in the hallway. And when you walked in, the first thing you walked into was the kitchen. And right in the middle of the kitchen was this huge clawfoot tub with um, a metal uh, corrugated sheet on it. And I remember that. I remember how it felt when one day someone knocked on the door and my mother was giving me a bath. And it was like, 
it was like the Keystone Cops. You got to get the kid out of the tub, cover it up, put a tablecloth on it, and then open the door. And I remember vividly what it felt like being in a bath of nice warm water. And all of a sudden, my mother lifts me up, and my butt was just in the cool air. I started crying. Oh, no. But so, so I, re, I have these snatches of memory of living in the old tenements Those before are they knocked them out. old school tenements. I've actually been in apartments that have the bathtub in the kitchen yes. in the East Village. I, yes. I, I remember I was friends with somebody um, that lived on St. Mark's Place mm -hmm. between First and A, I believe, mm -hmm. and yeah, the bath, the bathtub was right. in the kitchen. But they did have a toilet in a closet. They didn't have the toilet right. on the outside. But this, I guess, by the '90s, they fixed that. Oh yeah, that Hopefully. was Hopefully. that was high class. And we're talking about the 1990s <laughs> yeah, yeah. people. And not I was talking 18, about uh, 1950. When, yeah, we're not. She's yeah. not talking about like the 1850s. Yeah. 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 So it, it was it was a time, and then after that, uh, we moved to the Bronx to Fulton Avenue. And we lived, the, the attraction at each place is amazing. We lived right behind the 3rd Avenue L. So you could, every time the train went by, you could hear it all throughout the house. You could feel the vibrations. Um, and then we moved to the South Bronx, to Wilkins Avenue. And then finally, my parents bought a house. It took them all that time to save up enough money to buy a house. Um, and then I grew up, you know, on White Plains Road in the Bronx. Well, at least they got the house. And I'm still in the Bronx. You know what? Not everybody gets a house. That's right. You know, they so they, no matter how long it took them, they, they did it. And they were very proud of their little house. Where'd you go to high school? I went to James Monroe High School. Oh, okay. Um, and we lived near um, a place called E.J. Corvettes at that time. Oh, my God. I remember E.J. Corvettes. It, it closed in, like, around 1990. Yeah. Oh, my God. They used and to have most these... people don't know, but E.J. Corvettes was um, a store that was opened by a group of veterans. Yes. And so EJ Corvette stands for eight, eight Jewish, Jewish Korean, Korean veterans. veterans. Yeah, yes. that's like an old school New York yes. trivia. Yeah. So you youngs that are listening to the show, you're getting a little bit of New York City history here. Yeah, very good. So were you the kind of child that was always into creating and stuff? You, or did you come from a, an artist-oriented family, or were you the odd one? Um, my... My mother would have liked to have written, but she was too busy working. She was a, a nurse, and she was too busy working and taking care of her family to, to really devote herself to, to writing. Um, my father was a, a big reader of classical stuff, mm. so he liked reading philosophy, you know, Plato and Socrates, that kind of stuff. And he was an accountant for the uh, post office. Oh, wow. So um, they weren't artistic in that, in the sense of literary writing. Before I started school, I could read and write in Spanish. Great. Um, but once I, I started school, um, you know, the, the, then it was a different issue because the school didn't recognize that as knowledge. So I was lacking because I didn't speak English. Did they have bilingual education no. then? We're, no. we're talking about the early 1960s? Yep. No, they didn't have that. I ended up sitting in the back of the room. Uh, some other uh, Latino kid was supposed to translate for me. And she was very put out because, you know, she wanted to hang out with the cool kids and I wasn't a cool kid. Oh, um, my God. And so very early on, I got the message that I wasn't part of the in-group. And so I escaped into stories and books. I was 
constantly in the library. My parents are always buying books for me. And so I really created my own world. And I think that's where my writing came from. Um, because I, I didn't feel like I fit into the world that I was in physically. So I just escaped into books. So your parents just Spanish, just spoke Spanish to you at home? Yes. Did both, but both of them had to speak English at their jobs? At their jobs, yes. So what, what do you think was their thinking behind letting you go into kindergarten or first grade, not knowing the language of the country that you were living in? Well, we had a television, so we were exposed to English. Uh, we we didn't speak it, but we 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 knew about so you, it. So you so when you were watching cartoons, you knew what the cartoons were saying. Right. Okay. But I didn't speak English. I didn't create language. I only absorbed. Ah, language. got you. So entiende todo, no puedo hablar. Exactly. Gotcha. And then when we went to school, that means I understand everything. I can't talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to school, the the teacher called my mom and said, um, "You must stop speaking to her in Spanish Oy. because um, it's interfering with her learning English." And my mom said, it's your job to teach her English, and it's my job to make sure she remembers who she is. Oh! And oh, snap! That was the end of that. Wow. I think that that Is your mom still alive? My mom is not alive oh, well, anymore. Hi, hi, what's her name? Carmen Maria. Carmen Maria, high five to you yeah. for your answer. Oh. I think that the school system assumed that Puerto Ricans in that particular school uh, area were kind of low class and didn't know anything and were kind of ignorant, and they didn't know what to do with um, educated middle class Puerto Ricans who were coming into the city and were there temporarily until they could find the place they wanted to go to. So very quickly they realized that, you know, don't mess with this lady. Yeah. So. Oh, my God. So, no, you know, there's such a controversy about that, mm -hmm. and there's always been. My parents were also in that situation. Mm -hmm. You know, they, when my mom came here from PR, my dad was, I think he was born shortly after they arrived. Mm -hmm. And when they got married, because of the stigma mm -hmm. that, was, that was put upon them mm -hmm. for being sp speaking Spanish mm -hmm. first mm -hmm. in school, they decided when they got married, when they had kids, they were only going to speak English at home. Mm -hmm. So my brother and I grew up speaking English first. And any Spanish that I know, I had to absorb like humo from, mm -hmm. from the air, from, mm -hmm. from my grandmothers and my family. Right. And my brother knows seven words. But it's taken me my entire lifetime to be able to know enough to for people to think that I should know better. <laughs> well, I respect both points of view. My first job was as a bilingual teacher, as a teacher of English as a second language. And I, what I found was that students who came to me with a good understanding of their native language could transfer the skills easily. Students who didn't know their native language had no idea of the mechanics of language, so they had a much harder time. Now, one could make an argument that if you're living in, in New York City, that your native language should be English. What right. do, well, how do you answer that? Well, it, de it depends how you define native. Correct. Right? Correct. So if your native language is your first language and the language of your home, then that's your native language. I, um, so in my case, for instance, I am bilingual, but at this point, I am English dominant. and the English is an overlay mm. on the culture that I brought. Right. So I think like most 
Americans who acknowledge that they have an ethnicity other than the one here, um, I value both. And I, I go back and forth with both. Um, and I think that's important. I think yeah. we do, do our children a disservice not encouraging a second language, whether they are native born or not. The, the, it, it's much easier when the child comes in in the early grades. Yeah, that's what I was going right. to say. Like, if you're like in ninth grade already, I, this is going to be a little it's hard. It's tough. Oh, I, can, I, can't even, I couldn't even imagine how difficult it would be. And I know there are plenty of people that come here from not just a, a Spanish-speaking country, but any number of countries Absolutely. at the age of 16, 17, and then boom. Absolutely. How do you learn? And some people have an ear for languages. Right. So your ear for language then was developed when you were very, very young. Did you write stories from when you were a child? Um, when I was a child, um, this is when I was in, in about sixth grade, I decided I was going to buy a little diary with a little key. And every night I would write in my little diary. And I would lock it. And one day I came in and the lock was broken. And I said to my mom, who, you know, she says, well, I'm your mother. I need to know what you're writing. I need to, it's my responsibility to know what you're doing. And I threw the diary out, and I didn't write again until I was in high school. Oh, my God. And like, you were 12. Like, what secret could you have? I, 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 I felt the same I, way. I chewed bubble gum in class. <laughs> I, was, I felt very betrayed and very uh, um, vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. And so then I just I didn't write again until... I was sure that I had my privacy. Wow. Now, what? Now, how did you know that you had your privacy by the time you were in high school? Did you go to? Um, oh, you went to regular. I remember you went to James Monroe High School. Yes, so you I went did. to a regular New York City high school. I did. Proud product of the New York City public school Absolutely. system. Absolutely. And I wrote for the uh, literary journal. So in that high that was what got you back into yes. writing. Yes. Did you see? Did you? Did they seek you out? I asked to be in the creative writing class. Great. And. Um, I, I always give my props to Ms. Riemann, my creative writing teacher, um, because she encouraged me. And the rest is history. I mean, that wow. writing has been part of my life since then. So what was, the, what was the trigger that said to you, you know what, I need to do this again? I had permission to write fiction. It wasn't my right, thoughts, it. my personal ideas. This was... I could use my imagination. Right. So even if, some, if somebody else read it, in fact, fine, because it doesn't matter. It's not my inner self. So um, did you go to college? Yes. Where? First of all, my high school um, guidance counselor did not think I was college-worthy material. Oh? How? Um, I, don't, I don't believe it. That's terrible. I ended up at Manhattan Community College because she did not think that I could handle a four-year college. What, now, on the what basis did she make this assumption? I have no idea, but she decided that I should just go to a community college and become a secretary and leave it at what that. What was her name? Um, I forget, Miss Bass. Miss Bass? Bass? <laughs> you, sure was, you was wrong. <laughs> and then... R-O-N-G. <laughs> uh, and then I transferred to the University of Buffalo. Oh, cool. And, um, and I got my, my B.A., um, in English and Spanish, cum laude, I have to say. Miss Bash, you were R-O-N-G. Uh, and, then, um, and then I started teaching. And you started teaching right away? I, when I got out of college, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, started to, I came back 
home and I'm one of those 60s people who believed in giving back to the community. So I started teaching in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, from 1973 to 2004. Wow, my brother and I could have been in one of your classes. Easily. What schools were you in? Um, first I taught in a um, middle school, junior high school, um, 115. Oh man, we went to junior high school 127. Oh well, okay. yeah. And it was an all-girls school at that time. Uh, and then I went to different intermediate schools. I ended up uh, at James Monroe High School as a librarian. Oh my God! So you Many came like later, full circle. I came full circle. And then uh, when I retired, I had already decided in my 40s that when I retired it at 55, I was going to published, so I better get on the stick. So I started taking writing courses and writing workshops and worked with different people in different communities, joined the... Which, which people in which communities? Okay, I joined the John Oliver Killings Writing Workshop in Brooklyn. And for many years, I learned my craft from them. And then I started taking um, workshops with writers that I really love and admire, you know. So Christina Garcia uh, or Carolina Di Robertis, Dolan Perkins Valdez. And so there's a, a whole number, a whole group of people who have been kind of my godmothers. Um, certainly Toni Morrison on the page, I've never met her, but she gave me permission to talk about ghosts and spirits and magic and all of that. Ah, and now we're getting yeah. to the real meat of it because yeah. your writing is, I think, I mean, you, please correct me if, if I'm wrong with this, but I think your writing falls under the realm of magical realism. Many people would put it in that realm. And there you're following a, a long, beautiful story tradition of uh, 100 years of solitude, Absolutely. como agua para chocolate, like water yep. for chocolate, mm -hmm. and so, so many, many, many other writers who were, who were your uh, spirit guides, so to okay. speak. Well, definitely um, Toni Morrison was an early influence. Um, Isabel Allende was an early influence. Mm. Um, what I saw lacking was the presence of Afro-Puerto Ricans. Mm. Um, so I, I, I read Yolanda Arroyo Pizarro. I read Rosario Ferrer. Um, and Rosario Ferrer was the daughter of the governor of Puerto Rico. And she wrote about Puerto Rican gentry. So really, she wrote from the other side of white characters who had slaves. And I wanted to write from my side, which is black characters who had to live in a white world. Um, when I was a kid, I was sent to Puerto Rico to stay with my grandparents for two years. And everybody kept saying there was no racism, but I could obviously see that there was. And so I felt like I have to give voice to everything that I have experienced. I have to give voice to the good and the bad. I have to represent my community, especially the, uh, the Afro-Puerto Rican community, in all its complexities. Because I got really tired of people saying to me, you don't look Puerto Rican. And it's like, what does Puerto Rican look yeah, like? Yeah, holla. We're know? both Puerto Rican. Exactly. And you're a redhead freckled Puerto Rican, and I'm a black Puerto Rican. Yeah, you know? and, and, and you have some red hair and freckles in your DNA, and, I, and I know I have black in mine, so there Absolutely. we go. Because when you're a mixture of the conquered and the conqueror, we are uniquely qualified 
to look at life from both sides right. of the fence. Right. And that is a singular voice that needs to be out in this world Absolutely. more than ever. I feel like we are a hybrid nation. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to put everything out there for people to look at. And I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that both um, Latinos and African-Americans read my work and see some of themselves in there. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, that has to be like one of the best feelings in the world. Absolutely is. One thing that I've, I also admire about you greatly, Dalma, is that you started writing when you retired. Mm -hmm. Basically, you had done your whole working life, and like at an age where most people just want to go sit in the sun or, um, I don't know, be on eBay or whatever, or mm -hmm. make cookies, to use that old uh, Hillary mm -hmm. Clinton analogy from the 90s, mm -hmm. you were just like, I'm going to write books now. And you did. Uh, I actually started writing before I retired. When I retired, I wanted to hit the ground running. And so I'd had a few short stories published mm. in literary journals here and there. Great. I, w I was really lucky to work with the Bronx Council on the Arts, and they were very supportive in my early years. The Bronx Council on the Arts. Yes. Was Bill Aguado still there? Bill Aguado was still there, and now I'm, I work with Charlie Vasquez, who's also a wonderfully supportive uh, presence. And for me, it's important to work with the Bronx Council because the Bronx is part of my root system that nourishes who I am. And so I love teaching in non-traditional spaces. So I taught creative writing to people who were coming out of work and dragged themselves to my classroom um, because they wanted to be heard. And some yeah. of these people have been told their whole lives that they couldn't write, that they couldn't speak English well, that they couldn't do this. And that didn't mean that they didn't have something to contribute. And so I was really, I'm really honored that um, I get a chance to work with seniors and teenagers and, and just working people who just need permission to tell their story. It's, it's just amazing when you can encourage somebody to, yes, you can do this. Absolutely. I, I love when I go to schools and I speak with young people mm -hmm. because I think that they need to see somebody who speaks like them and looks like them and eats the same food as them and mm -hmm. goes through the same parental struggles that they did, yeah. that, you, that this is something that I can do. Absolutely. Because I know when I was young, there were no role model. I didn't know one. Like, I would turn on the TV. The only Latina that I saw was um, Charo. Mm -hmm. and she didn't do it for me. <laughs> and even to this day, a lot of Afro-Latino actors and actresses are cast as African-Americans, yes. but not as Latino. Because right. still, the dominant narrative is that Latinos are olive-skinned, women have wild hair and big hoops, and, um, and this is who they are. So we have to project all the different sides of us. Yeah. And, and, um, and first, we have to embrace it ourselves as a community and then push it onto the dominant stage. I think that that's happening now. I mean, it's certainly, I don't, I don't think it was, I don't, wasn't even aware of it 20 years ago, mm -hmm. but, I, but since I've become a writer and I've been, spe especially speaking with more artists, mm -hmm. I can see how that is, and I can see with young people, too. Mm -hmm. um, I recently performed at, at Columbia University, at the Teachers College, there were a bunch of pe other 
many different performers there, but I spoke at length with some of these young people that were in their mid-20s, mm -hmm. and I was just floored and amazed by their perception and their ability and their mm -hmm. compassion and their energy. And I was like, oh my God, what, do I want to be 25 again? <laughs> and then the answer was really, no, I don't want to be 25 right. again. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about um, Chicken Soup for the Latino Soul. Was that, that, now, that was not your first publication. No. That was my first publication. Okay. And you probably had, you, if you had been published in literary journals before mm -hmm. then, you, did you, um, did, were they more, did it consider more prestigious? Well, they were I mean, because the Chicken Soup is like a mainstream type right, of thing. Yeah, it's like yeah. kind, I mean, to be honest, it's the kind of book you pick up to read in a, on a plane. Right. Which right. is nothing wrong with that. Right. Absolutely not. No. Um, no, I, so... Very popular series, and it's been going on for years. Right. Yeah, I've been published in literary journals, um, which is a, a slightly different perspective. Um, and what was published were what ended up being chapters in Daughters of the Stone. Oh, that's great. So um, that's how I started, was sending out chapters to different um, magazines. and. The reality is, like every other um, artist, I got a lot of rejections. They weren't, nobody was standing holding the door open for Afro-Puerto Rican literature. Um, but it was included in different anthologies, and um, I'm very happy about that. I love the fact that people in different schools invited me to come and read to the kids, that actually the, the book was has been taught in about a dozen universities. Fantastic. And now what's particularly pleasing for me is that graduate students who were introduced to my book when they were in graduate schools are now professors and inviting me to come and speak to their classes. So the second generation. Yes. Oh my so God, really talk about, about Daughters of the Stone. This, yeah. this is like a whole generational thing yeah. there. It's, it's like a little engine that could. You that, know, this that, book is still with us. That's amazing. That mm -hmm. is just amazing. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about Daughters of the Stone. Um, when did the idea for this story, this fantastic story, this multi-generational story of these amazing women first come about? It first came about um, about 30 years ago um, when I was very sick and uh, I was single at the time. I, I didn't have anybody to take care of me. So I went to Puerto Rico and my grandmother took care of me. And while I was recuperating, her friends, who were in their 80s at the time, would come by and tell me stories. And I started writing them down. And my grandmother said to them, Mira, que esa niña está escribiendo todo lo que ustedes dicen. You know, she's writing down everything you say. Be careful. Yeah, right. <laughs> then they brought me more stories, and not just their stories, but, you know, Doña Yeja's story and Manin's story. And little by little, I started getting stories of everybody in this town. And I started writing them down. And then I realized I can't do this because if five people tell you the same story, they're going to tell you five different stories. Yeah. Right? And so if I included somebody, they would say, well, it didn't happen that way. If I didn't include somebody, they would say, well, why didn't you include me? And I decided, you know what? I'm writing fiction. Forget about memoir. I'm writing fiction. And so um, that's how Daughters of the Stone started, my writing down these stories and taking off from there. So what I started was with the oral tradition of women sitting around the balcon telling each other stories. 
and then I, I applied my training as an English teacher to that and, and really expanded it into a fictional narrative. So when you started, when, after you retired, when you started doing the writer's workshops, were you working on those stories then? Yes. I had been working on them all along, but now I had to put them into a, a novel format. And so you have all this raw material, you have to superimpose a structure on it. And that's what I needed help with. That's a long process. Very Thir long. 30 years to birth that book. Actually, I would say 20 years, because the first 10 years, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. I was just journaling and writing stories and thinking I was writing short stories. And then uh, about 10 years into that, I said, wait a minute, this all fits together like a puzzle. And that's how um, the, the novel came to be. So tell us a little bit about Daughters from the Stone. Okay, Daughters of the Stone is, is a, a narrative of five generations of Afro-Puerto Rican women. It starts in West Africa in the mid-1800s, and it goes to 1970s, to the Vietnam War in the United States. So it goes from West Africa to colonial Puerto Rico, and then during the Great Migration, it goes to New York City. And, um, and it ends uh, with... Uh, more or less around the uh, the time of Vietnam protests. So it's a oh. good 150-year ch chunk of time. And what I wanted to do was write the voyage of Puerto Rican people from Africa all the way to New York City. How did we get here? Why did we get here? Um, what did we bring? What did we contribute? Um, how did these different environments and different languages impact on us as a people. How much of you and your family would you say is in this book? Um, it is fiction, um, but I must say that it, it incorporates a lot of the experiences of my family. There are people in my family who sat down with the book and with a notebook and wrote down the names of all the characters and tried to figure out. If they did figure it out, it means that you were speaking truth. Yes, I, I find that it's really interesting that you are at, you end the book during the Vietnam War protests because it kind of seems we are about to enter as a society into another um, phase for great civil unrest to happen again. Right, yeah, I see yeah. upheavals. The children are speaking. Yes, yes, um, and in, in some the, ways let the children lead the way. Um, and I think it's it's right that they should because they're the ones who are going to inherit this earth. Correct. And um, obviously, the, the the people in charge are not listening to a lot of us. And maybe the only way they will listen is if the children um, make issue and take exception with what's going on. So yeah, I think it's a very interesting thing. I was in, um, after the election, I went into a very, uh, deep depression, and I feel now that I see hope. What we can do is we can use our pen yes. to resist. Yes. And, um, and I feel very much that everything that I write yes. is resistance because it is about I am here, I'm not going away, I'm part of the American fabric, and you have to acknowledge the fact that we are in this together. Whether you feel like I belong here or not is irrelevant. 
I am here. Well, just the simple fact that you and I are having this conversation at all, that's resistance. Absolutely. High five on the air. Absolutely. This is an exciting time to be around. It is. Yes. It is. I, I want to see it get done right this time. Finish what grandma started. Now <laughs> In some cases, great grandma. Yeah, okay. right, right. You know, seriously. Yeah. And a little uh, birdie. No, not a birdie. No birdies. This is the fish out of Aqua show. A little pescao told me that you have a story to tell us. Well, I'll tell you the story of my second novel. Great. Yo, okay. great. That's fantastic. Uh, right now, the working title is A Woman of Endurance. And it is, the main character is Paula, who is an African woman who is brought to Puerto Rico, and she was purchased as a breeder. And she is, she is taken to this farm where there are dozens of women breeders, and they are serially raped, and their children are taken away and sold immediately. And... The question of this novel is, if you survive that kind of experience, first of all, how do you survive it? And, and second of all, can you ever have, be a normal human being again? Can you learn to trust? Can you learn to trust men? So that's one aspect of the novel. Another aspect of the novel is we see in many slave narratives, we see that the White characters are the main story, and the slaves are the periphery. In this novel, the black community of enslaved people is the main story, and the white characters are the peripheral. And so what the white, character imp what the white characters do, of course, impacts on the black characters. But the question is, how does this community work? You know. It's multidimensional. There are enslaved people who were um, educated scholars in Africa. There are those who were um, priests in Africa. There are those who were just your regular laborers. And they were all captured and collectively looked at as slaves. And the white people saw them at all basically the same. But actually, there are all gradations and all um, nuances within this group of black people that even though it's not recognized by the white society, within their own group, they recognize who is the herbalist and who is the healer and who is the collaborator and who is the, um, the person who can't accept um, themselves. And there's one character in particular who is a black albino and her position is, yo soy más blanca que los blancos. You know, I'm whiter than the white people. The white people. Um, and so it's really an exploration of a multidimensional enslaved community and how they supported or not each other. So that's kind of a, what you would call a dystopian future that I can almost see that scenario happening. You know how like Handmaid's Tale made you yeah. feel that mm -hmm. in a way too? Oh my God, that's incredible. I, but I, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but I will say that I do not write hopeless books. Okay? No, I, I, I know that. Mm -hmm. And you're not a hopeless person. No. 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 So we know there's going to be hope there. And, you know, we need, well, we have to have hope. Because yes. without hope, you'd have nothing. We wouldn't be here. No, no. We and, wouldn't be here. And, you know, it. we we talk about the, we talked about the kids before, and we talked about the protests and, and the need for the protests and the reasons for the protests and why this is this happening again. And I kind of think 
that we've come back to the same place because we haven't learned anything. Well, I think that in some <laughs> ways history is a pendulum. Yes. You know, and we have to keep going back and forth. And, uh, you know, I have great respect for Buddhism. And I feel like um, you're given a chance to do it better this time. Yeah. So let's hope that we will we'll get it right this time. Or maybe not, but we'll do better than we did last time. Oh, you know what? Sometimes that's all you can ask for. Mm -hmm. So, Dalma, um, if people want to know more about your writing and, mm -hmm. and your appearances, and uh, how and where can you be found? My web page is dalmayanosfigueroa.com, or you can just type in Daughters of the Stone, and it'll bring up my web page. And there I list where I will be um, appearing. I list what I'm working on. I list, um, I will be um, selling, right now Daughters of the Stone is out of print. You can only get um, used copies. But I am planning on uh, having it reprinted in paperback and will be selling it off my webpage. And hopefully I will find someone to publish my second book. So, Dalma, I asked this question of everybody when we end our time together, yes. um, and I bet you have an answer for this. So, if you could say one thing to the child who wants to do something more than they feel like they're allowed to be, mm -hmm. and they don't see a way that they can continue to do what to put out in the world what's burning inside them, mm -hmm. what would you say to that child? I would say that today, more than ever, there are many ways of storytelling there are many ways of putting your ideas down or putting them out. You may not get what you want now, but think of it this way. It's not you can't do it, it's you can't do it yet. And so find your little notebook or record it into your um, phone or draw it or paint it or do whatever you need to and keep it in a special place and one day you'll be able to bring it out into the light and share it with other people. But if you have a creative urge, it's not gonna go away because you were born with that and it will flourish and it will take you where you need to go. Wise words from a wise woman. Thank you for being on Fish Out of Agua, Dalma. You're welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Hug on the air. Hug on the air. Cuando pasa frente a mí se alegra de su negrura todo el corazón. Las caras lindas de mi raza prieta vienen de llanto, de pena y dolor. Son 
las verdades que la vida reta, pero que llevan dentro mucho amor. Somos la amenaza que ríe, la amenaza que llora. Somos la amenaza que ama. Vivo orgulloso de su colorido, somos de tu amable declara poesía. Tienen su ritmo, tienen melodía, las caras lindas de mi gente negra. Qué chula, qué son bonita. 
Gorgeous. So we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And that was Ismael Rivera with La Caras Lindas de Mi Gente Negra, which means the beautiful faces of my Afro-Rican people. And that was a single from Fania, the record label Fania, in 1978. For those of you who are not familiar with Fania, Fania is a big salsa label from the late 20th century. I don't remember, maybe they started in the mid, I don't know, I should have looked this up. But I can tell you this, that Fania was to salsa what Stax was to Southern R&B and Soul, and Mute was to British electronic music. So Fania, Fania All-Stars is one of the best salsa albums ever. Anyway, you heard this from Titi Shell. <laughs> Well, kids, um, that's our show. Like I said, you have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn, we are a nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. So why not support us? Donate us. Donate to us. We invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate as little as a dollar. And every cent helps us to continue to stay on the air. Support living artists. Woohoo! Don't forget that um, we have a free iPhone and Android app, so you no longer need to be chained to your computer to listen to Fish Out of Agua or any other of the fine shows on Radio Free Brooklyn. Just download the app 
uh, from RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash iPhone or RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash Android. Okay, we're going to close with um, the last of Dalma's picks. This song is from Luther Vandross. It's called A House Is Not A Home from the Never Too Much album back in 1981. All right, kids, stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Pretty little darling, have a heart.